If you don't have a Bible, there's some under uh, at least some of the chairs. And this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 830. Uh, If you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, you can feel free to take one of those home with you. Again, that was on page 833, and the passage is Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 36. But before we read, let's pray. Father, this morning, we're thankful for your word, that you haven't left us uh, without hope and without ability to know you, but that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And even more than that, you have revealed yourself to us in your son, how that you sent him into the world to redeem it and to redeem us and to save us from our sins and save us from death and to free us from their power. Father, we pray that this morning that you would send your spirit to help us to understand the words of your son in our passage. That as he talks and we read about what is going to happen at the end of the world, that it wouldn't seem as if something that is far off and irrelevant to our lives today, but that we would recognize in his words a warning that however far off that day is, it will come unexpectedly. And that because of that, we need to now prepare ourselves for its arrival. And we pray that this morning that Uh, you would just break down within us those things which would set themselves in opposition to you and your word. God, our, our pride, our selfishness, our sin, these things that we cling to instead of you. And that you would break down our walls with your truth and the power of the gospel. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we started this two week journey through Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And for those of you who were here last week, you know that last week was a really long sermon by our standards. Uh, Hopefully, this week will be shorter, but I'm not making any promises. It should be. Uh, So last week we started talking about what the Bible has to say about the end of the world. All these things that Scripture says are coming at the end. And so we began by going through what Scripture as a whole has to say about all these major events that are going to happen. And then we came back to Matthew 24 and talked about what Jesus says about those events. And what I said last week was that we were going to cover kind of all the things that he says are going to happen, and then that this week we would get into these, these four stories where Jesus tells us how all of that stuff that he said is going to happen should apply to our lives now. So he's going to give us four stories in our passage today which show us how the end matters today to us and what we should do about it. So, 
The main point for us this morning as we look at this passage, this long passage which starts in Matthew 24 verse 36 and goes all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 25, the main point is that we should actively prepare for Jesus' return by continually believing and applying the gospel because we don't know when his return will be. We should actively prepare for Jesus' return by continually believing and applying the gospel because we don't know when that return is coming. That's what we're going to see as we go through these uh, four stories this morning. And it doesn't really matter where we're at this morning, whether we're someone that's been a Christian for 10 years or whether we're someone that's been a Christian for 10 days. It doesn't matter whether we've believed the gospel our whole lives or we haven't yet believed the gospel. Our response to these things in this passage should be the same exact thing. We should start believing the gospel and keep believing the gospel until Jesus returns because that's what's going to actively prepare us for it. And so, as we get into these stories, the first story is going to show up in in verse uh, 42, but before we get there, there's kind of this transitionary passage where Jesus kind of moves from telling us about all this stuff that will happen to telling us how it will affect our lives. We see this in verse 36 through 41. We're going to read that first. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So he starts by by kind of rehashing some of the stuff he's been talking about. He's saying that the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus' return, is going to be unexpected. He tells us in verse 36, he says, Nobody knows. No person knows. No angel knows. Not even Jesus himself knows. Only the Father knows. And right here we have to stop and talk about this because lots of people have an objection to this verse. I actually lived with a guy uh, after college who was a Bible major at HLG, graduated from HLG with a Bible degree, and uh, he almost lost his faith because of this verse right here. Because he said, and, and all these other people say, well, how can Jesus be God and not know this thing? Because we all know that, that Scripture tells us that Jesus is fully God, right? Colossians 2.9, a whole bunch of other places, says that in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. So he is fully God. But Scripture also tells us that God is omniscient. Omniscient is just a fancy word that scholars use to say that, that God knows everything. And so these objectors say, well, if Jesus is is fully God and God knows everything, then how can Jesus be God and not know this? And that's a great question. And there's two responses that we can make. Well, really three. We could say he's not God, but we're not going to say that. So there's two things we can say. The first, some people say, that while Jesus was on the earth, when he, he took on flesh and became man so that he could walk this earth and redeem us, when he took on flesh, he, he kind of took on with that some limitations of his divinity. So they would say that, that part of him becoming man means that you know, he doesn't necessarily function as God exactly as he did before. So, for example, God is also omnipresent, which is a fancy word that means that he's everywhere. 
We know that when Jesus walked on the earth and you know, met with the disciples and teached and preached to specific groups of people that he wasn't in multiple places at the same time. He was in one physical place. And so they'll say, just like he limited his presence to one place, he also you know, limited his knowledge to just some things. That's a valid uh, response, but I don't think that's the best one. I think that the way we answer this question is by recognizing how Jesus functions within the Trinity. Uh, The Trinity is uh, how Christians describe who God is and how he reveals himself in Scripture. Trinity means that uh, God has eternally existed as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's one God. And within those three persons, what we see in Scripture is that they they function differently. They have different roles. So we see the Father planning things and directing things and giving commands. And uh, we see the Son being sent by the Father and under the authority of the Father and obeying the Father. We see the Spirit being sent by both the Father and the Son and doing what the Father and the Son tell him to do. And so there's these distinctions within the Trinity, but, but they still are all three equal as God. And so when we think about what's going on here in this passage and we think about the fact that Jesus says he doesn't know this thing, it's helpful to recognize that what's happening here is not that Jesus isn't God because he doesn't know this one event, but that because of his role within the Trinity, he's exercising submission to the Father because the Father has planned the end. He's decided how that's going to work out, how those things are going to happen. And one aspect of that is that only he knows when the end will come. And Jesus, in his role within the Trinity, submits to the Father and obeys the Father and respects the Father's authority. And so what we see here is not some limitation on his divinity, but him exercising humility. Just because he he doesn't exercise his omniscience or his ability to know everything to the fullest extent doesn't mean he's God. For example, we also say that God's all-powerful. He has the power to do anything. So, God, if he wanted to, could decide to wipe the world out at any moment. But does he? No, thankfully. Does that mean that he's not God? Because he's not doing everything he possibly could with his power all at the same time? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that because of how he's planned things to happen, he doesn't act that way. Jesus here is submitting to the Father just like Paul describes it in Philippians 2. Though he found himself in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He submits to the Father in humility. So it's not that he can't know or he doesn't have the ability to know. It's that he submits to the Father. But the point for us is that if Jesus doesn't know, and if the angels don't know, then what he says about us is certainly true. No one knows. No person knows when the end will come. So what this should tell us is that whenever we see someone who, you know, builds a website or gets on Facebook and says that the end of the world is coming on October 12th, 2013, we should say, that person's an idiot. Jesus says, nobody knows doesn't matter how nice your website is, you don't know either. It's a waste of time for us to spend energy on this. Instead, we should do what Jesus encourages us to do in this passage, which is actively prepare for the end. 
So he says, no one knows. And then he explains all of this with this story about Noah and his family. He says, the coming of the Son of Man is going to be just like the days of Noah. In Noah's day, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving a marriage. They were doing normal life things, things that everyone does because they didn't think that the flood was going to come. Right? Noah said, God's going to judge the world. You need to repent. You need to believe in him. And I'm going to build a boat, a huge boat to escape this flood. And everyone else said, that guy's crazy. Let's just do what we always do. So they ate, they drank, they got married, and they didn't know what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. But Noah was doing the exact opposite, right? The way that the timeline seems to break down in Genesis is that Noah had about 100 years to build this massive boat, it's 450 feet long by 75 feet wide by about four stories tall. So this is a huge, huge, huge thing. And Matt and I were talking about this yesterday. He didn't have Lowe's or a nail gun or any nails even. And he made this huge boat. And so what probably would have happened is he would have been spending all of his time building this boat between the time that God told him it was going to happen and the time the flood actually came. He was consumed, as was his family, with this task of building the boat. They weren't distracted by normal life things. They were focused on escaping what he, God said was coming. And so I think what we should take from this is that we should be similar to Noah and his family. Not exactly the same, right? We don't need to go out and big a, build a huge boat. We don't need to spend all of our waking hours focused on a task like that. Instead, what we should do is, is take those normal life events like eating and drinking and getting married. married, And we should use those and, and do those things in light of the end that's coming. We shouldn't be distracted by them from what's happening like the people were in Noah's day. Instead, those should, should fuel us in our quest to live in light of the reality that Jesus is going to return. He's going to get into this in the passage. He says, Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. He doesn't say where they'll be taken to. There's really two options. Back in verse uh, 31, he says that his angels are going to come and they're going to take the elect to be with Jesus. And so these people could be taken to be gathered with God's people or the other option is what he was talking about in verse 39 where all the people in Noah's day are taken away by the flood. So they're either taken away to be with Jesus or they're taken away in judgment, but it really doesn't matter which one it is. What he's getting at here, what he's highlighting is the unexpected nature of this event. It's going to happen quickly and suddenly and no one will expect it. There's two people side by side and then one is taken. And then he tells us the first story here. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. This word here, therefore, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's picking up everything that he said up to this point in Matthew 24, and he's, he's transitioning to what he's going to say next. He's, he's going to apply all of these events that he's talked about in these stories that follow. He says, stay awake, for you do not know when your Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If someone came to me and they said, Dan, 
I'm going to break into your house at 1.17 p.m. Or a.m. That would make more sense. <laughs> I, at 1.17 a.m., would probably have my 12-gauge waiting for them. I would certainly be awake, and I would probably actually call the police. That would be smarter. <laughs> I would be prepared for their arrival in whatever way. I certainly wouldn't go to sleep and say they were probably just kidding. But the point is, is that we don't know when they're going to come. Thieves don't give us notice of when they're breaking into our house because the advantage of surprise is, is for them. But Jesus' point here, it's a pretty self-explanatory story. It's that we don't know when it's going to happen. And so because of that, we can't just be prepared at 117. We have to be prepared all the time because we don't know when he's going to come. And he's going to get into how we do that and what we do. The next story, verses 48, sorry, 45 through the end. He says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, we will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In these verses, we get this, this contrast between two different types of servants. We get in the first three verses, this faithful and wise servant. He's faithful and wise because he does exactly what his master tells him to do. His master says, care for your fellow servants. Give them their food when I'm gone. His master comes and finds him doing just that. And so Jesus tells us that he's rewarded. He, he's set over all his possessions. Because he's been responsible with what the master has given him, he gets more responsibility. He gets rewarded with that. But there's the other servant, the wicked servant. He sees that the master's delayed in coming and takes that delay as an example to do whatever he wants. He beats his servants, he eats and drinks with drunkards, and he disobeys what the master has told him to do. Now, we should recognize here, Obviously, beating his fellow servants is wrong, but eating and drinking with drunkards, that's not wrong. Jesus did that. The reason why this guy gets busted for it is because it's not what his master told him to do. His master told him to, to give food to his fellow servants, not his friends, and throw a big party. So this guy gets punished, and Jesus tells us, comes back in surprise, and he cuts him in pieces. This word here is the same word where we get the word di dichotomy. So like two opposing views. This guy gets dichotomized, cut in half. Not sure whether it's vertical or horizontal, but I don't think this guy cared. He gets cut in half. And then Jesus uses the language, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the language he uses throughout the Gospels to talk about hell. He's saying this guy is punished eternally with torment because he was disobedient to the master. He didn't do what the master told him to do. And again, he highlights in this story the unexpected nature of the master's arrival. 
For us, we should be reminded last week, we talked about 2 Peter 3.9. This is what it says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This delay in the master's return, it's not time for us just to goof off and do whatever we want. For us to say, well, he's not coming back for a while, so clearly we don't have to do what he told us to do just yet. Instead, Peter tells us this time is not slowness on his part, it's mercy on his part. He's giving us, he's giving others time to repent. And so because of that, we should use that time to do what he's told us to do, to go out and share his message with other people and to believe his message ourselves because he's given us this time to repent. And so we should be more like this faithful and wise servant who cares for his people while the master is gone instead of like this wicked servant who uses the time for his own pleasure and his own gain. In chapter 25, we start the third story. This one's a little longer. Jesus tells us, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now this story, at first, seems a little strange. Right, there's this bridegroom who's walking at night and he meets these ten virgins and they say, hey, the bridegroom's here. And so they go with him and then they, like five of them, go inside uh, with the groom and they shut the door. And if you don't know what's happening, it could be odd. Is he marrying all five of them? Which one's the bride? What's, What's going on with this? This whole business about a guy and ten virgins sounds more like something from the Quran than it does like something from the Bible. But if we think about the way weddings worked in the ancient world, it probably will make a little bit more sense. Uh, Their weddings weren't like ours, where both the bride and the groom show up at the church together and their families all come and then sit on opposite sides of the room. It's not like that. It's different. Instead, what happened is the groom with his, his groomsmen would leave the groom's house and go to the bride's house at night. And at the bride's house, they would have the the kind of marriage ceremony. And then when that was over, they would go back to the groom's house for the the wedding feast, which was kind of like our reception, only probably with a lot better food. And they would have this, this big, huge party, which would sometimes last for days at the groom's house. And so it seems like what's happening in this passage, since it's He's coming back at midnight is the wedding ceremony has happened at the bride's house and then the groom is on his way back, probably with his groomsmen. They're probably the ones who said, hey, here comes the bridegroom because I guess they did that. So they're on their way back 
And these, these women, these 10 women, probably none of whom is the bride, is waiting for the groom so they can join them on their way back to his house for the marriage feast. We don't really know who they are. They might be bridesmaids. They might not be. But who they are doesn't really matter. What matters is what they do. So they're waiting in the dark, and because it was dark and there, weren't, there wasn't a lot of light in those days, they brought these lamps with them. And five of them, Jesus tells us, were wise. They planned ahead. They thought, we're going to be out in the dark for a while waiting for this guy. We don't know when he's going to come. Maybe we should take extra oil with us so that if our lamps go out, we're not standing in the dark. The other five were foolish and just took their lamps. And so what Jesus tells us happened is the delay is longer than they thought. Um, evidently, the ceremony went a little long. Maybe they were, they were Catholic. And they probably weren't. They were Jewish, obviously. <laughs> the delay is unexpected. And again, that's the theme of this whole passage. The delay is going to happen. We won't know when he's going to come. He's going to come in an unexpected way and he catches them off guard and their lamps go out and they have no oil. And the, the wise say that they don't have enough for both. So they send them back and they miss the bridegroom's coming. And then they go into the house and then once these other five show up, they're denied entrance. I don't really think that that would happen. I think they would let them in late. But Jesus is making a point here that those who are unprepared for the kingdom's arrival will not get in. There's two big things we should notice here. The first is that the wise are granted entrance. These five wise virgins get into the marriage feast because they actively prepared. They didn't just passively wait for the bridegroom to come. They did something to prepare themselves for his arrival. They thought maybe he's going to be delayed, so let's take extra oil with us. They did something practical and active ahead of time to prepare for his arrival. The other five did not, and those who aren't ready don't get in. The second thing that we should really see here is what happens in verse 9 where the wise say, we don't have enough oil for both of us. What this should tell us is that we can't prepare for someone else. No matter how much we care about people, no matter how much we love people, no matter how much we serve people, we can't prepare for them to enter the kingdom. They have to do that themselves. Without preparation on our own for his revival, for his return, we won't enter the kingdom. It's not just something we do inwardly, it's something we do outwardly and actively. And we can't do it for someone else. The last story starts in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this guy has three servants. And he gives one servant five talents. One, two, one, one. Now in this time, this word talent, it's not like skill or ability or gift like we use the word talent. In Jesus' day, it was both a unit of money, like the dollar, and a unit of weight, like a pound. If you have an ESV or one of the Bibles under the chairs, you'll see down at the bottom of the page is a footnote that says this. A talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a laborer. 20 years' wages for a laborer. So let's figure out what it would be today. Uh, In the great state of Missouri, minimum wage is currently 735. I looked it up on Google, so it's got to be true. So let's say that a a day laborer in the city of Hannibal makes minimum wage. And let's say that they work 40 hours a week, and they work 52 weeks a year. They either don't take a vacation or they get paid for it. If they work 40 hours a week, they get paid $294 per week. 294 times 52 weeks is $15,288 a year. For the the purpose of easy math, let's say that they get a ton of tax breaks and they only pay $288 in taxes per year. So they make an even $15,000 after taxes. So that's a year's wages for a laborer. That means that a talent times 20 would be about $300,000 today in this city. So one servant gets five of those. That's $1.5 million dollars. The next one gets 600000 and the last one gets 300000 So he gives them a substantial amount of money. And he does so, the word tells us, each according to his ability. So he's judging them in a nice way. He's evaluating their ability to do what he's entrusted them to do, and he gives them different amounts based on that. Evidently, he has much more confidence Uh, in this one who gets five than the one who gets one, and rightly so, as he's justified in that evaluation later. So the guy with five talents goes and tells us in verse 16, he who received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He didn't wait. He didn't delay. He didn't 
just sit around and him and haw about what he was going to do with the money that his master entrusted him with, he went out at once and started working to do what his master told him to do. And what he did was doubled his master's money. He took the 1.5 and he made it 3 million. The next guy does the same exact thing. He takes his 600,000 and turns it into 1.2 million. And then there's old one talent who takes his 300,000 digs a hole, and puts the money in it. Not necessarily the wisest move, but he knew that he wouldn't lose any of it. Master comes back again after a long time and settles accounts with these guys. The guy that's doubled it to three million comes and tells him what he's done. And his master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I've set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So he rewards him with two things. He gives him more responsibility, just like we saw happen in that earlier story, and then he allows him to share in his joy. The next guy comes, says the same thing. And what's interesting here is that even though he was entrusted with less, and even though he made less, the master tells him the same exact thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the level of success isn't what's rewarded. It's the level of obedience. They both obeyed in the same way. They both did what the master instructed them to do. They both get rewarded identically. And there's the last guy. He comes, and instead of saying, I was a big chicken and buried your money in the ground, so it's a little dirty, but I have it. He says, it's your fault. He said, I knew you were a hard man. It's your fault that I was too afraid to do anything with it. So I just hid it away. His master says, well, if you knew that, if that was true, then why didn't you at least put it in a bank? And then I would have had a little more than what you stuck in the ground. And he takes what this guy had and gives it to the guy who had 10 talents. He gives it to someone who is actually going to use it in the way that he instructed him to. And there's this, this verse 29. In Matthew, it's a little confusing, but the parallel in Luke goes like this. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. If some of you think that this idea sounds a little familiar, uh, it's because there's a line in Spider-Man that is almost identical. It says, with great power comes great responsibility. They ripped off Jesus right here. With great power comes great responsibility. The point for us is to recognize that whatever amount of gifts we have, whether it's a lot or whether it is a little, it's because God has decided to give us that much gift. And our responsibility is not to, to compare ourselves to other people or to be jealous or envious of the amount of gifts or the amount of you know, talents that they get entrusted with by God. Instead of comparing ourselves to them, what we should focus on is our level of obedience because it doesn't matter how much we gain for God. What matters is how much we obey him because that's what he's told us to do. The guy with five gets the same reward as the guy with two. The guy with one gets judged not because he just had one, but because he didn't obey the master. Their level of success isn't what's important. It's their level of obedience. I think that we should 
recognize three big things here. Oh, really, I already said one, so two more. Focusing on the comparison only hinders us from our task. If, if we're jealous, if we're envious, then we're not doing what he's told us to do. We're being disobedient. So that's just a waste of time. The last thing is that without comparing ourselves, we should desire to be entrusted with more. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us all Christians, he says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Seek them. We shouldn't seek them so that we can say, hey, look at, look at the gifts I have. I can do all these things for God. We should seek them so that we can be more effective for him in his kingdom. So that others would look at us and not say, look at how great they are. But so that like Jesus says in Matthew, that they would see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. We should seek more spiritual gifts so that we can do more for his kingdom. Not to earn any kind of favor with him or pleasure from him, but so that we can respond in obedience to what Christ has done for us. At the same time, we should recognize as we seek spiritual gifts that like Spider-Man, more ability brings more responsibility. He has entrusted us with gifts not just to sit idle and not use them, not just to hide them in the ground, but so that we can use them for his kingdom and for his glory. And if we don't, we can have confidence that just like this one guy, our gifts will be taken from us and given to someone who's going to use them for his kingdom. We should not waste what he's given us. We should not waste the time that he's given us. We should use that time to labor for his glory so that other people will repent and enter the kingdom. Jesus goes on from here to talk about the final judgment. He's given us these four stories which explain what we should do in this time of delay before he returns. Now he's going to tell us what's going to happen when he comes back. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, and, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food, I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer to them, saying, 
Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, when Jesus returns, his angels are going to bring everyone before his throne. He's going to separate people. He's going to separate his people from those who are not his people. I think that this is very important. We need to recognize as a church and as Christians that Jesus does not separate his people from the world until the end, at the final judgment. This has implications for what we talked about last week with those views of you know, the two separate comings, but I think even more important, it has implications for how we live now. A lot of Christians feel the pull to separate themselves from the world. I'm not going to hang out with lost people. I'm not going to spend time with non-Christians. I'm not going to go to places where non-Christians go. But Jesus says we're not going to be separate from the world until the end, and so we shouldn't separate ourselves now. He didn't. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners and drunks. He spent time with them. He ministered among them, yet was without sin himself. We're not called to be separate. He does that at the end. We're called to be in the world, ministering for him and for his glory now among the world. That means instead of withdrawing from it, we need to invite them in. We should be eating with the kind of people Jesus ate with. And if we're not, then we're doing something now that he doesn't do until the end. Next, after he separates them, he speaks to each group. He says that big, long thing about what they they did for Jesus, what the sheep did for Jesus. And what's really interesting about this is it surprises them. They don't know what he's talking about. He says, you did all these things on my behalf. And they say, when? And what he says is that, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, meaning my disciples, people that follow me, Christians, believers, as you did to them, you did to me, whether for good or for bad. He says the same thing to both groups. So what he's doing here is he's tying our eternal fate to how we treat believers. That's odd surprising to them should be surprising to us because we know that the rest of the new testament says that we're saved by grace and by grace alone we're saved on the basis of what christ has done not on the basis of how we treat fellow christians but i think what we see here what we see in first john and the rest of the new testament if we're looking for it is that how we treat people who believe in jesus represents how we feel about jesus People that hate Jesus hate Christians. People that don't like Jesus don't like Christians. People that would mistreat Jesus mistreat believers. Whereas people who love him and follow him and want to serve him do the same thing for his people. And so the reason why Jesus ties our fate to how we treat Christians is because that's a a direct representation of how we feel about him. Right? He tells us in the gospel, people hate us because they hated Jesus him. People love him, love us because they loved him, right? The only 
thing that some of us have in common is the fact that we follow Jesus. Otherwise, we would hang out with other people. At least for some of you. What we have in common more than anything else is that we are followers of Jesus, and that's why we're gathered here this morning. Not for any other reason. Because I know that I would not sit there and listen to someone talk for as long as I talked last week and as long as I've talked today if I didn't have a really good reason to. All together, all of this stuff that Jesus has told us about the end that is coming and about its, its unexpected and surprising arrival is that it's going to come and we don't expect it to. And that because of that, the only thing we can do to make sure that we're ready for his return is to be continually, daily, moment by moment, actively preparing ourselves for his return. We can't do it passively. We have to be intentional about it. And we do that by doing what Jesus has called us to do. And obviously we don't have time to go through everything that he's called us to do in Matthew. Everything that he's called us to do in his word. But he's called us to to love God, to love fellow believers, and to share his message of salvation with everyone else as we love and serve them too. We do all of this by walking in obedience, in active, continual obedience which prepares us for his return. But this obedience, it's based on the truth of the gospel. We can't take everything that Jesus says in these two chapters and, and separate it from what's about to happen. Right? Because Jesus, I didn't, I didn't talk about it, but when he said, when he, when he started 25, he said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. In this story, he's saying, the kingdom's not like this now. It's not like this story about these virgins. It's not like this story about the guy with the talents. It's going to be like that then. And he's talking about after he dies on the cross, these things are going to happen. His call for us to be obedient and his call for us to prepare ourselves for his return is based entirely on his death on the cross. It's because he knew that that's what was going to happen just three days after he gives this speech that he can make the promises that he makes in this passage for eternal life. Because he knows that even though he's innocent, he's going to suffer and die for our sin. He's going to pay the penalty that we deserve. He's going to purchase our forgiveness and our freedom. He's going to give us the spirit so that we can walk in obedience to what he has told us in his word. Without the gospel, these two passages are hopeless. Things like weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal punishment are all that we can hope for. The promise for eternal life only comes because Jesus goes to the cross willingly. And so wherever we are this morning, as we think about these things, as we think about the fact that this could happen at any time and it will be unexpected, we need to be people who are making sure that we are preparing ourselves now for those events. Because if we're not, these passages tell us that we will be with these servants who are punished in this horrible way. And I know that people don't like it when we talk about hell. 
when Christians talk about hell because they'll say, well, you know, that's, that's not merciful and that's not loving because, because it's just not. And the Jesus we see in the Gospels is, is all about love and all about mercy. And I completely agree. But these passages are here because he is loving and because he is merciful. That's why he told us that that's what's going to happen so that we can do something about it now while his return has been delayed. Remember, this time is for us to repent. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today as a church, as we do every Sunday, we need to remind ourselves that the end is coming. That we can't just sit idly by and wait. But that we need to be actively preparing ourselves. Whether we've been a Christian forever or whether we're not a Christian yet. Our response is the same. We need to believe the gospel today. We need to believe the gospel tomorrow. We need to keep applying it and keep living it out. Because as he told us in 24, it's those who endure till the end that will be saved. Not those who pray a prayer once and then do whatever they want for the rest of their lives. We must actively prepare ourselves by continually believing and applying the gospel because his return is coming when we don't expect it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these warnings that you've given us in this passage. Jesus, we thank you that you backed up your promises in this passage by going to the cross and by purchasing our freedom from both the penalty and the power of sin that we don't have to fear this horrible judgment at the end because of what you've done for us. And we thank you that you have been patient with us and given us time to repent. We pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to keep enduring and to keep believing and keep trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation and not in anything else. That we wouldn't see in our obedience something that earns our salvation but something that's a response to it. That we would desire to live lives which bring you glory and that bring repentance to others. We pray that this morning that you would help us to repent of the way that we have neglected to live in light of your return. That we've been distracted by everyday activities instead of using those everyday activities for your kingdom. We pray that now as we take the Lord's Supper that we would be reminded again that without your death 
and resurrection on our behalf, we have no hope. But that you are a loving and merciful and patient God who has provided us with a means of redemption. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.